is the WTF Bach Podcast. The podcast about Johann Sebastian Bach, brought to you by his prodigal son, WTF Bach. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. Why don't you let WTF Bach guide you? And now, here's WTF Bach. Evan Schinner's here, finally, bringing you what you've all been waiting for for some six months. That's my interview with Joshua Rifkin. We recorded this long time ago, and then his audio was lost, and then we had to go digging in the mines of the internet, and then we found it. So here's our interview. If you've heard of Joshua Rifkin, there's a good chance that you heard him play ragtime music, Scott Joplin or other composers. It was, in fact, Rifkin's Scott Joplin record that was the first record to sell a million copies for None Such Records, the very interesting and prestigious label. Rifkin has quite an interesting career that spans a lot of not only classical music, as I've said, with ragtime, but also tango music and all sorts of music. He made arrangements for Judy Collins on more than one of her albums. He performed with a group called the Even Dozen Jug Band, whose members included Steve Katz, who later played with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and a man named, brace yourself, brace yourself, John Sebastian. That's right, John Sebastian, who later went on to play with The Lovin' Spoonful. Rifkin was right there in the middle of all this exciting experimental music, but I don't think I'd be far off in saying that his true passion is Bach. His research into the performance practice of Bach's cantatas, Bach's vocal music, is some of the most seminal in the field. It was, as he will tell you, through examining the parts, the individual parts of Bach's vocal works, that he published his theories on what the word chorus meant for Bach, how many people were singing. His theory is essentially that there is one singer per part. Even in the giant vocal works like The Passions, very interesting stuff, I hope you enjoy. We spoke for over two hours talking shop, as it were. We kind of went all over the place, really. So I've chopped this conversation down quite a bit, mostly focusing on his work about Bach. Pour yourself a lukewarm cup of Kimun tea from China, I suppose, and enjoy my interview with Joshua Rifkin. Joshua Rifkin, welcome to the show. Many thanks. Happy to be here. Conductor, pianist, musicologist, at what age did Bach become important? Well, Bach became important almost from the first moment I became musically aware, um, in part because my parents had some recordings. What I really remember um, are 78 recordings, which of course dates me, but that's common knowledge, of the second and third Brandenburg concertos. And I played these incessantly as a kid. That, I think, already got me somewhat fixated on Bach. And so, as far as I can remember, when I kind of reached the age of being conscious about music and really kind of reaching out to um, eat all the music I possibly could, this would be when I'm around maybe 12, 13, I certainly went out and, you know, was buying recordings and scores of Bach cantatas and the St. Matthew Passion. Um, it's around this time that I first heard the Passion, in fact, on a very dimly transmitted broadcast from Tanglewood with, you know, monstrous chorus and all of that. And I was, of course, totally uh, flummoxed and, and I could say just almost bored by everything after that opening chorus, but that opening sound of the 
huge soprano section, you know, laying out that great upward arpeggio just transfixed me utterly. So very early on, that was, that was part of my horizon. So it was, it was the buying of records that prompted the interest in vocal music? The, the difference there, or what got me to buy the records, in fact, was my piano teacher, a wonderful, now-forgotten musician by the name of David Leibovitz. Uh, he was a fairly prominent piano teacher in New York, and he was also a choral conductor. And it was he who said to me, you know, my piano lessons, he said, well, you know, the real thing with Bach is the cantatas. And that's not something that you necessarily expect, you know, in the early 1950s in New York. But, but, you know, if he said it to me, I knew, okay, I've got to see what's there. And so indeed, the cantatas became, not surprisingly, something of an obsession with me very early on. The question of how do you perform these pieces was very, very prominent in my mind from just about the first time I listened to one of these. And of course, Already then, my goal really was to conduct this music, to perform this music. And so, of course, I had to be asking, well, how do you do it? Because, again, this gets ahead of things. But as you know, any performer of Bach, and particularly of the vocal music, is faced with a lot of choices where the score does not tell you the answers that you would be looking for as a practical musician. So that's a very early concern, you should say. Obsession, even is the word I've used, and it's not inaccurate. So let's let's go to the um, to the Leipzig uh, Sunday of of Bach. Four churches. I mean, can you take us through his his Sunday? What what time do you think he woke up, for example? Well, let's see. There are others who know some of this better than I do. But yes, Bach supplies the music for what four churches in Leipzig. Um, you you can look at him as you know, kind of like. Nowadays, when someone running a restaurant is successful, the first thing they do is open another restaurant, you know, and soon they have an empire of restaurants, you know, sometimes spread out over the globe, sometimes in several locations in one city. And it's, by the way, economically necessary for them to survive. And one restaurant, a restaurateur does not survive. So, um, and of course, in one of them, they'll do the cooking. And in the others, they have, you know, people delegated to do that. So I think we can see Bach in such a, such a situation. Um, his official title is actually civic music director and counter of St. Thomas Church. Um, of course, there's no separation between church and state in this time. And the churches in the city of Leipzig are city churches. So he is the, and, and of course, the music in the church is a civic affair. Indeed, as you know, one of the occasions for which a cantata is performed is the election of the town council. Now, this is not on your regular liturgical calendar, but it's part of the uh, church life in Leipzig, and it's part of his musical duties. So he has the job, first of all, of taking care of the music at the two main churches. There are two largest principal churches. One is St. Nicholas, uh, St. Nikolai, and the other St. Thomas, uh, the Thomaskirche. Now, we, because we know of Bach as the Contra of St. Thomas, think of that as the major church in Leipzig. But actually, the prime place was St. Nicholas. That is the first church, and St. Thomas is the second principal church. Um, but St. Nicholas has a school which is devoted to turning out future bureaucrats and ruling and the ruling elite 
of the government there. St. Thomas has a school which is geared basically towards turning out good singers and instrumentalists, kids who can provide for the music at the services of the churches. Of course, many of them don't become professional musicians, and they too become bureaucrats, professors, and things like that. But sort of the entry uh, requirement, at least as it was originally set up, is that you have to be good at music. It's like going to the High School of Music and Art in New York City, what's now LaGuardia School, uh, or Performing Arts. You have to, you know, you have a full academic load, but you have to pass tests in certain things and show talent in certain things. So here is Bach then with the responsibility of providing music for, for these four churches. Actually, a fifth comes into it, but that's very peripheral. Now, for the first two churches, he has to provide music of an ambitious cast, and that's the cantata, basically, or the passions. And the situation is that with his group of pupils at the Tomaschule and a couple of civic musicians, he leads a cantata on Sundays and feast days. And he does it one week in one of the churches and the next occasion in the other church. So he's constantly going back and forth between St. Thomas and St. Nicholas. On high feast days, he'll do it in both churches, in the morning in St. Thomas, in the afternoon at St. Nicholas, or vice versa. At the church where he is not leading the cantata, they only sing chorales and motets. And on feast days, there a simple cantata will be done under the direction of a more mature pupil at the school, the so-called prefect who will lead the music. So he's like, you know, again, the executive chef in the second restaurant. So that's on those two churches, Bach is going to be present on alternate weeks. There's a third church, the so-called new church, where he sent a group of kids to sing chorales and motets. There are cantatas there occasionally, but they have nothing to do with Bach. They are led by the organist of that church with a bunch of university students. I should, though, point out, because this is something that people often ignore, the university students, that group of students, also performed in secular circumstances, and they were known as the Collegium Musicum in Leipzig. And Bach ultimately takes over that organization. So that is a Bach connection, but he is not leading the music in the church. And lastly, I'm sorry this is such a detailed resume, um, in a fourth church, he sends kids who can barely sing a chorale, and they go and they sing chorales there. Those latter two churches obviously have simpler services, the fourth church, the St. Peter's church, the simplest, you know, of all. Uh, the new church is actually a pretty prominent institution because it's kind of like a fashionable church in the early 18th century. But so Bach has officially the control over all of these things. So he's watching over all of this. He's figuring, okay, what kids do I send where? You know, how do I have to keep this going and there are other operations that he keeps going? So he is very busy. On the Sunday or feast day when he does a cantata, let's say, um, I think, if I recall, the morning service began at something like 7 a.m. So I'd imagine he's waking up at 5, something like that. And the church is not heated, so it's, um, you know, there's no central heating. So it's not going to be fun in winter. It can be cold in Leipzig. That, I think, is basically the situation with which he's dealing. Uh, it's always good to remind ourselves of these things, and I'm glad you bring it up, because after all, you know, to us, this is distant great masterpieces, historical things. 
but it's actually, of course, real life being lived by real people. Um, and particularly when we are real musicians dealing with this music, it's very salutary to keep that in mind. Now, one of the most uh, illuminating parts of your research, at least for me, uh, is that the score is not really the main thing. It's the part. So how or why uh, or when did that idea strike you that maybe we could put something together something historical from looking at the individual parts? It's a very good question. Again, I shall have to say that the initial credit does not rest with me. The way Bach worked was as follows. He would write a score. Well, let me, let me come back. Sorry. For us today, a score is the embodiment of the piece. It is the piece. You know, you want Mahler's fifth, you go out and buy a score of Mahler's fifth, right? Um, Bach's time is different. The score is the working document in which you get the piece basically written down. And writing down for composer, particularly in that time, basically meant getting the notes right, getting the pitches right, getting the durations right, getting the right instruments and voices assigned, etc. But particularly when you're doing this at great speed, you're not going to have the time, let's say, to put in all the fine details of articulation, all the dynamics, all the stuff that, you know, fill up a Mahler score, let's say. But if you look at Mahler's sketches, you find that he too, or Beethoven when he's sketching, is really getting the basics down. So the score for Bach is getting the basics down. Now, you can't perform a piece from that. To perform a piece, you need parts. That's no change today. So he has to give his singers, he has to give his instrumentalists separate parts from which they will perform. It's when he does this that he fixes a lot that is not fixed in the score. What will happen basically is that a copyist, a kid will, a kid at the Tomaschule will copy out one each of every part. Then a couple of other flunkies will be human Xerox machines and make second copies of a couple of the parts of the violins and the continuo. But before they do that, in fact, Bach will go through the first copies of the parts and he'll correct them and he'll add to them. So he'll put in dynamics that are not in the score. He'll put in articulation that is not in the score. He'll put in figuring in the continuo part, which is never in his composing scores. Because why bother taking the time to do it then, you know? So it's a very efficient process he has. It's long been known in Bach research that the parts are the main source of the text, that when you have the parts, you don't always, but when you have them, they're really the, the sort of latest word that you have on the subject. So I learned that relatively quickly. It was also known quite early that the parts provided information on performance that you did not get in the score. And I read this stuff quite early too, so I, so I, so I learned you know, to understand that the information is there in the parts, or that a lot of the information is there in the parts. I can give you one, let's say, anodyne example, even though it's still honored more in the breach than in the act. There was an article, there was a great German Bach scholar named Alfred Dürer. Uh, he was really the great Bach scholar of the second half of the 20th century. Uh, for those who are listening and try to imagine the name, it's spelled D. U with an umlaut R R, great man who I had, whom I had the great, great good fortune to know. And Dürer wrote an article, like in the early fifties, in a German magazine, German journal for church musicians, called something like "How to Read a Critical Report for Musicians." 
how, you know, what a musician can get out of these uh, very, very daunting volumes in German, laying out everything about the sources and that sort of thing. And he made, for example, one interesting point, and that is this. We today, typically, when we perform Bach, perform continuo arias, or let's say arias with just one obligato instrument, in other words, without the full string group, with a continuo in which the only melodic instrument is a cello or a bassoon. Whereas in tutis, in big movements, we'll also have a 16-foot instrument, a violone, a modern double bass, often a bassoon, although actually Bach used that much more rarely than we think. But this is something that everybody has heard in every Bach performance. Now, Dürer pointed out, as I say, 70 years ago uh, or so, he said, if you go to Bach's parts, you discover that, let's say, there are two copies of continual part. Both of these copies contain every single note of the part no matter what the scoring of the music. So, so it's clear that they're not writing the stuff out for their health. And we have to take seriously that Bach actually means both of those instruments to play or whatever the instruments are to play. Indeed, we have parts from Weimar in which Bach in his own hand writes out a part called violoncello and a part called violone, and they play exactly the same notes no matter what the scoring of the piece is. As I say, you don't commonly hear that in performance, but that's something that the parts tell you. And that was pointed out, as I say, long, 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 long ago. Indeed, now that I think of it, of course, there was a famous book on Bach performance that was published in 1936 on performing Bach. Uh, on performing the Leipzig church music. And this was written by a German scholar called Arnold Schering. And this was for a long time the standard book on the subject. And it was Schering who also said, look, we want to know how Bach performed his music. This is the first place we have to look. So in those ways, I was simply following what some great predecessors had laid down for me and for others. The question is, what is the information you get? And did sharing in particular always read these correctly? How do we read what these parts contain? That's where, and I can elaborate on this, I came to some, let's say, insights that were different from what had been the standard um, set of recipes that had been uh, in practice both in or, or, or accepted both in scholarship and in practice uh, really uh, since time immemorial, but not, I hasten to say, in Bach's own time. Was it impossible for two singers to hold the same part? Well, first of all, the uh, traditional theory is not that two singers held the same part, but that three singers read from the same part, which was held by one of the singers in the center uh, with one on either side looking on. Is it impossible? I can't say it's impossible. I could never say it's impossible. I've never said it's impossible uh, any more than I could say that they sang standing on their heads. Now, we laugh, but frankly, we know just as much about either possibility. The first thing one would have to say is if, and this is of course not personally directed, um, but if you're asking the question, why are you asking the question? Is there evidence from the 18th century that prompts the question? Or is the question prompted by what people have traditionally believed? So let me step back for a second on this. Again, there's a bit of background. 
First, I mention questions in the performance of Bach. Anybody who is conducting a Bach cantata, or most Bach so-called choral works, large-scale vocal works, is going to think at first that it's easy to see what's the chorus and what's the soloist, you know? If it's a movement that's headed chorus and has four voice lines and lots of instruments, it's your chorus, it's your choral group as you have it today. If it's an aria or recitative, it's solo, very simple. The problem is that actually when you start to deal with these things, a lot of it becomes much less clear. There are many, 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 many movements where you can't really tell and you're asking yourself, well, is this for the chorus or is this solo? And if you listen to recordings, or certainly at that time, you'll find conductor A has it this way, conductor B has it this way. And you're asking the question, well, wait a second, well, why didn't Bach tell you? Why doesn't he not leave this? Why doesn't he not just say, okay, this is for the chorus. Like, for example, by the way, most of the opening movements in Bach cantatas that we call choruses don't have um, a designation. They're just the notes. Doesn't say chorus. There are some four pieces that open a piece that say aria, and yet we think of them as choruses because aria is a formal designation. That's all right. I, I needn't bore people with all of these details. The point is that it's uncertain. And as a conductor, it was obviously, it was obviously of great concern to me. You know, what do I do and what guidance can I find? Now, a second thing came into this as well. I mentioned the name Arnold Schering. And Arnold Schering, who was a great scholar, had discovered that there were situations in which in the 17th century, additional singers would sing with something, but let's say drop in and out. Let's say, imagine a pop recording, which you have a basic track with guitar and voice, and then you have overdubs, you know, with strings or other instruments. And he discovered something like this in the 17th century. And he also discovered something like this in Bach in some situations. And I won't go into the intricacies because he was actually wrong about practically everything he said. But he did put forth this idea that, let's say, not every Bach chorus is sung by full voices throughout. That sometimes, in fact, it's only single voices that are singing, four singers together. Of course, this added another element of complication to the situation because it's never indicated, or rather, you get such indications in a handful of people, pieces, but otherwise not. So what's going on here? You know, the, the things just don't come together. So this puzzled me. Then also, I uh, must admit that there was a conductor in my time, um, a man with a absolutely horrid political past, but nevertheless, a wonderful musician by the name of Wilhelm Amon, who uh, took this idea and did performances of Bach cantatas in which several sections were sung by just four singers. And I'll have to say, I heard those recordings and I found it enchanting. I, I just saw the, thought the sound was beautiful. I also knew that it was wrong on historical terms, that the evidence wasn't there for it. But you could say that, okay, unconsciously something in me was saying, but I like that. Is there a way that it's true that I can make that work? Okay, so that's the one background. Now, the other background uh, was this. I was commissioned in the early 70s by the New Grove Dictionary to write the article on Heinrich Schütz, the greatest German composer of the 17th century. And Schütz had been a passion of mine alongside Bach, also since I was a kid. Also, by the way, um, 
fostered by my piano teacher, who knew Schutz and said, you should look at him. I write this article, and among other things, um, I had to prepare the list of his works. Being the kind of character I am, uh, this meant going back to all of the original sources of all 500 odd pieces. So I just saw everything. And of course, I'm looking at this stuff with my conductor's eye, because also in shoots, I'm asking the question, what's choral, what's solo? And so I have my eye out for anything that's going to tell me something about how this stuff is performed. I realized at a certain point that there was a rule there. And the rule was you give one copy of the music to each singer. So basically you have one soprano part, you have one person singing that part. It's an absolutely inviolable rule in the 17th century. I mean, I obviously look further. I look through Monteverdi and Bieber, etc. Also worked. And obviously in the back of my mind is, yeah, but when did it change? You know, when did we get what Bach did? Because I had grown up believing that singers shared the music. And then one day I was sitting in the Isham Library of Harvard University. That's a library that contains microfilms of thousands of original musical sources. And they had, in fact, films of all of the Bach original performing parts there. Uh, it had come through a great Bach scholar named Arthur Mendel at Princeton, who had assembled it for Princeton. And then Christoph Wolf, another eminent Bach scholar, when he went to teach at Harvard, uh, was able to arrange that Harvard would get copies of this. I had seen the stuff at Princeton also, but you know, here I am down the street from Harvard, so I would go and I would look at these things. And without getting too technical, at one point I'm going through a real thing, and I see in one cantata, it was, by the way, BWV 76, Die Himmel erzähl in die Ära Gottes, the exact same kind of information that I saw in the 17th century stuff that I had seen in Schutz. And that's when the light went on. I realized it wasn't any different. They sang one to a part in Leipzig. Now, the next thing is, of course, well, if you only have one copy of each part, and that's what survives, almost entirely, one soprano, one alto, one tenor bass. If, and this is an important if, and if it can be shown that that's exactly what they had when Bach was performing the music, the conclusion is dead simple and obvious. Also scary. And of course, the first thing that I had to do was see, well, does this hold up? Which meant looking at every single damned part to every single vocal piece we have and looking at a lot more stuff too you know up to haydn mozart uh telemann etc etc and you know i'm sorry to say but the answer was just simple and black and white and i will also have to say that um you know numbers do not resolve the truth or untruth of any scholarly claim but i do not know of anyone who has actually gone back and looked at these parts who has come to any different conclusion. So that was what I'd found. And of course, as I say, I had to spend time working through the rest of the research. And at a certain point, I felt ready to present it publicly. And of course, I was a musician in the public eye and I was recording. I would have been stupid and naive to think that this might not have some, um, you know, public value, as it were. So I did go to Nonsuch Records 
after the first recording that the Bach Ensemble had done. And, you know, and I was asked, well, what do you want to do next? I said, well, what about the B minor mass without a chorus? And uh, fortunately, Keith Holzman, then the president of Nonsuch, said, yes, let's do it, and gave me the budget to do this. So that that's that's the background, both from the scholarly terms, both the biographical terms, and, and as I say, most important, the evidence involved. If you have uh, one singer on a part in something like One of the Passions, switching, switching characters, as would have, have to have been the case, does this imply that the performance becomes more or less dramatic? Now, that's a very interesting question you ask. It's a very acute one. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, first, one thing about switching characters, it's of course, as everything is with Bach, a little bit more complicated. But let's take the bass in the St. Matthew Passion, okay? There is one copy of the bass part for Chorus 1. And in that part, above it, above the first chord, not the, uh, uh, to the upper left-hand corner, appears the word Jesus. So it says, this is the part for the singer who sings Jesus. Now, of course, you could always ask, and with caution, you always ask to, you have to ask, well, it's for Jesus and whom else? Let me come back to the whom else in one second. But in this part, Basso Yeza, you have every chorus, every chorale, all of Jesus's words, and the recitative, uh, am Abend da es kühle war, and the aria mache dich mein Herz rein. That's all sung by the same bass. And that's absolutely unambiguous. I mean, it's there in the part. Now, in fact, uh, my colleague John Butt, colleague and good friend, uh, has written a very fascinating article about the consequences of this, um, what it means for the presentation if you have this. And I'll get back to that in one second. But let me get back to this question of Jesus and who else. Now, it just happens that there are a couple of other bass roles in the Matthew Passion, there is Pilate, there are the two high priests, uh, Peter. Now, if Bach had multiple singers reading along with Jesus, he could very well have put their music in the Jesus part, and they could have sung it. But as it happens, he put their music in separate parts. There's like, there are like two bass parts. There's one bass part that has, I think, Pilate and one of the priests, another bass part that has the second priest and maybe Peter. I don't remember the details. And they contain only the music that these people sing. And every chorus and, and, and every chorus and chorale in the spot is explicitly marked, touch it. You don't sing it. You shut up. Um, again, after all, if three people were reading from Jesus, you'd think, oh, that's a great advantage because they could all sing in the choruses. But Bach tells them explicitly, don't sing in the choruses. There is really no way to slice that. One person reads from Basso Jesus. Obviously, the very, quote, realistic, unquote, drama that you get by having the separate singer for Jesus, the separate singer for the evangelist, you don't have. What you do have, and I think this can be seen as a great virtue, is a fluidity that the singers step into different roles. And you are asked in the audience not literally to see this person there as Jesus, or let's say as in uh, Peter Sellers' uh, staging of the same Matthew Passion, but rather somebody in a way from one of you who is taking on these various duties and is immersing himself in this story and providing a different way for you to immerse yourself in the story. Um, it both lends an element of distance. It's almost, let's say, a Brechtian uh, 
what's what's word for Flendung's effect, um, alienation effect, because it's not literally somebody representing Jesus. But at the same time, once you accept that, it can make it much more vivid that someone who sings here and sings as a member of the congregation, figuratively in a chorale, now takes on this persona. So that is one thing that I think can make it much more dramatic. And the other thing I would stress, and of course I'm biased, I'm a, I'm a conductor speaking here, you get another fluidity and flexibility just in the forces and the sonority, because you no longer, as in more traditional performances, let's say of St. Matthew or St. John Passion, have this kind of all or nothing between the mass and the more intimate thing, but rather a set of nuances, a set of gradations between things that, let's say, two choruses in unison will sing in a Matthew Passion, which will be a singers and all and quite a few instruments, and things that are four voices and things that are two voices and things that are one voice. So there's a much subtler scale of change. And to me, that gives the thing a fluidity and an ease of motion that makes it more gripping and much more dramatic in that way. I'll add just one or two points on this also, because um, the Matthew Passion, which as you can tell is a piece of maybe more of more concern to me than any other Bach work, um, was also something with which I experienced a major revelation when performing the piece. If you look at the score to the opening chorus of the Matthew Passion, you'll discover something interesting. The two chorus, there's chorus one, there's two chorus two. They sing separately, presenting questions and answers back and forth. Chorus one says, you know, behold him. Chorus two says, who? Says Christ, the bridegroom. How, you know, look at him. How? Like a bridegroom, etc. like a lamb. And they keep doing this throughout the whole piece. Then near the end of it, the opening music comes back. And that great arpeggio is sung by the alto, not the soprano, it's transposed. But then with the answer to it, it's no longer sung just in chorus one, but chorus two joins in in unison. And all of the other answers, the fugal answers, the imitative answers, are sung by singers of both chorus one and chorus two. And that persists almost until the end of the movement. Now, you look at the score and you think, ah, Bach is just making it easy for himself. He doesn't want to write a thick tutti with just eight real voices. I mean, he's capable of it, but why bother? So he's getting, you know, he's kind of simplifying things. And you listen to any recording of it, any traditional recording of it, and you don't hear anything. The first performance of the Matthew Passion that I and the Bach Ensemble did was in 1985 in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I remember conducting the first rehearsal. People arrayed, I give the upbeat, I give the downbeat. We go through the chorus. At this moment near the end of the chorus, I almost dropped my stick and fell down because the effect of suddenly hearing the doubled voices, which contrasted so powerfully with the single voices, was overwhelming. I realized then Bach had to have composed that into the music. It wasn't just doing double chorus on the cheap. He had a very calculated effect there. Now, can I prove it? Can I ask him? No. But that seemed to me absolutely the case. And that kind of thing, again, is something that goes, that gets lost 
if you do the passion according to tradition, but not Bach's tradition, if you do what Bach's parts very clearly tell you, and by the way, they're parts that he prepared very carefully, mostly wrote out himself, then you are obscuring things that are very, very vital to this music. Now, it seems like in the Bach world, a world that's so thoroughly studied, where it's difficult to make almost a single statement about the man or his work without an entire tradition of academics and music performers breathing down your neck. Where does a young, aspiring musicologist start? (sighs) Probably by finding something else to do. (laughs) Okay. In our day and age, the profession of musicology, particularly academic musicology, um, has changed beyond recognition from the world into which I came as an aspiring performer and scholar. Um, And that has affected, not least, Bach. Um, Bach research was one of the real nerve centers of musicological, of musical scholarship writ large um, in the time when I got into it. There were fantastic discoveries being made at the time. And these were kind of like um, something that was showing the whole profession uh, the whole discipline, what you can do, what possibilities you have. And I was very lucky to uh, get in, not on the ground floor, but let's say, you know, maybe on the escalator going one flight up. That's totally changed. Bach studies are nowadays a very small peripheral business, particularly in the English-speaking world. We no longer publish or get published in the major central journals or or hardly. It's become a self-referential kind of clique, if you will. Um, And there's no question that it's not the kind of thing that's wanted. Fortunately, there are still a few kids out there who, despite all this, who knowing all this, say, yeah, but you know, the music is attractive and there are some interesting questions that are still... Uh, to be addressed. You know, you always think that this stuff has been worked over so much and by so many people, it is just nothing more to find. And the astonishing thing is that new things are being found just about every day. And, you know, and things that really kind of affect how we conceptualize the music, the man, the whole context, etc. So in those ways, it's very, very much alive. But it has become a minority field. I do not mean that uh, in the broader population and ethnically, but it's a very small coterie of people um, who follow this now. That might change, that might not change. I would hope that, you know, in that if the performance situations change, it might also be more attractive to people. It's interesting. I have, and, and I'm not alone in this, discovered that actually take seriously what the sources, the old manuscripts, box parts, tell us about performance and try to put that into practice, that the result can be more attractive to many people than the standard issue thing that they have grown up with uh, or that they, you know, have heard. So maybe that can help bring people to it. I don't know. It's not my concern. Um, you know, I'm, I'm past my sell date, sell by date in that business. On the other hand, you know, I have many years on you and you still find Bach interesting. And that's, of course, that's a very encouraging sign that, that, that someone like you 
uh, you know, can say, well, but there's something still here. We only do music, and we uh, both as performers and as people researching it, you know, if we feel there's something in it for us. And I don't mean that monetarily, but, you know, that's going to give us something back. So I'll just hope there are still people out there who feel Bach will give them something back. Mr. Rifkin, Joshua Rifkin, it's been an absolute thrill having you here on the show. Thanks so much for talking. I've had a very good time talking with you, and I would trust that this is not the last conversation, official or unofficial, that we have. You'll be back the next season for sure. Well, thank you so much, Evan. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to the WTF Baja Podcast.